Welcome to Stacks and Stories, the podcast of the Mississippi Library Commission. If you turn on the Mississippi Public Broadcasting radio station on Saturdays at 11 a.m., you'll hear a short five-minute MLC moment from us. These are quick tidbits of information, all drawn from what you can find at your local public library. Because they're so short, we're combining some of them into a longer episode for our regular podcast feed. This episode is all things historical. Join Tracy as she talks about microhistories and a famous murder case, while Alex takes you deep into the WPA files created in the 1930s. Stay tuned! This is MLC Moments. I'm Tracy Carr with the Mississippi Library Commission. Our modern world is packed with information, and sometimes it seems that we know a little bit about a lot of things instead of knowing a lot about a few things. One way to become an instant expert on a topic is to read a microhistory. A microhistory is a nonfiction book that's a deep dive into one particular thing, usually a common object. Three microhistories I've enjoyed are about salt, bananas, and New York City rats. Salt, A World History, is by Mark Kurlansky, who's also written books about cod, called Cod, and milk, called Milk, with an exclamation point. In this book, you can learn all about how every culture valued and sought out salt. Roman soldiers were paid in salt, leading to the word salary, and the word soldier itself comes from the French word for pay, sold. Even the word salad comes from the Roman custom of salting their greens before eating. Side note, I've always wondered how those 60s starters with tiny marshmallows or sliced eggs encased in jello had the nerve to call themselves salads, and this information doesn't help clear that up at all. It wasn't until 1807 that self-taught chemist Sir Humphrey Davy isolated sodium, leading future scientists to name sodium chloride, that delicious addition that Americans in particular can't get enough of. The United States is the largest salt producer in the world, making 40 million metric tons of salt per year, although only 8% of that is used for food. Much of the rest is for de-icing roads. For more salty facts, check out Salt, A World History. Another microhistory that I found fascinating is Banana, The Fate of the Fruit That Changed the World by Dan Koppel. I will admit that I first got interested in banana history when I was trying to figure out if my grandmother was lying when she said she'd never even seen a banana until she was 10 or 12, and so when she first encountered one, she ate the whole thing, peel and all. I needed to know when bananas would have been available in southwest Mississippi in the 1920s. Side note, I have decided this is a true story. Other non-grandmother story verifying banana facts are also pretty fascinating. For instance, apparently ancient biblical texts written in Hebrew and Greek did not feature an apple that tempted Eve in the Garden of Eden, but a banana instead. This makes more sense if you consider how large banana leaves are. They'd be much better at concealing things. It wasn't until St. Jerome, patron saint of librarians, by the way, created the Vulgate Bible around the year 400, a version of the book that united the older texts into a cohesive Latin form that the apple made its appearance. St. Jerome translated the Hebrew description of Eden's good and evil fruit with the word malum for evil. Think of malicious or malevolent. Malum can also be translated as apple. A thousand years later, when Renaissance artists consulted their Gutenberg Bibles, they painted apples in their works. Check out Banana by Don Koppel for more fruity facts. I've saved the best microhistory for last. Rats. 
Observation of the History and Habitat of the City's Most Unwanted Inhabitants by Robert Sullivan is a fascinating book about not just any old rats, but fancy New York City rats. This book has it all. Rat facts, a history of the city, and it's meticulously documented. Because look, sometimes when you're reading a book about rats, you need a footnote or endnote in order to know where to go to read more about how Rikers Island was originally a beautiful 67-acre island before New York City started using it as a dumping ground and leading it to become overrun by rats who'd stow away on the boats bringing the garbage to the island. It's estimated that at one point, there were as many as 3 million rats happily thriving on Garbage Island. Plenty of friends, plenty to eat, and more of both arriving every day. The city tried several methods, including World War I-era poison gas in their rat battle, before hiring the Billig brothers, Irving and Hugo, to take on the job. After placing 25,000 baits on the island, in their first day alone, the Billigs removed 2,000 rat carcasses. Maybe rats aren't your thing, but the way that Robert Sullivan approaches his subject makes this book immensely readable and more like a rat-obsessed friend telling you some wild stories than an academic volume of rat history. I wouldn't be surprised if New York City's first rat czar, Kathleen Karate, has this on her bedside table. It's a great way to know one's enemy. For more microhistory deep dives, head to your local Mississippi Public Library. I'm Alex Brower with the Mississippi Library Commission. Today, we are going to talk about MLC's collection of WPA papers, digitized records from the 1930s when the Works Progress Administration sent field workers to each county to compile local histories. These histories included local artists, flora and fauna, myths and legends, notable homes and people, and much more. While they aren't necessarily the most authoritative sources because they depend on human memory and, occasionally, gossip, they do give a clear picture of each county in the 30s and can be a wealth of lesser-known information. There is a little disclaimer at the beginning of each file that says because of the diversity of sources and fallibility of human memory, it is suggested that documentary material be consulted to validate the information in the volume, and much of the information that they collected was through personal interviews. Our featured county this week is Rankin County, founded on February 4, 1828, using land carved out from Hines County in central Mississippi and named after Congressman Christopher Rankin. The WPA files have main sections that appear in each report, like the history of each county, flora and fauna, and even notable artists and musicians. One lesser-known Rankin County celebrity in the WPA papers was a radio personality and singer who was known by the stage name, or mic name, of Louisiana Lou. Her given name was Eva May Greenwood Kahn, and she was born in Rankin County in 1907. According to IMDb, she both acted in and had a song on the soundtrack of the film Wall Street Cowboy, which came out in 1939. Her songs include a cover of Sinful to Flirt, Export Gal, and Garden in the Sky. She worked briefly at Jackson's WJDX, where Eudora Welty once worked, before heading off to bigger and better things. Well, she went to Iowa. She became a headliner for the WHO Iowa Barn Dance Program, where she stayed through the 40s before jumping ship and joining up with the KMBC in Kansas City, after which she faded into obscurity. You know what they say, if you can make it in Iowa, you might be able to make it in Kansas City. One of the most thrilling parts of the WPA files is the notable trees section, and the star of the show for Rankin County is the cedar tree located on the grounds of the Piney Woods School, 
where the first principal, Lawrence C. Jones, held the first class of eight pupils. This is corroborated on the Piney Woods School's website. It doesn't seem that the cedar tree withstood the century since these papers were written, as there is now a symbolic recreation of the tree and the log that Jones sat on to give the first lessons in the spot where it once stood. The field workers who compiled the WPA files didn't just interview residents, they also looked at historical records, newspapers, and the papers of private citizens. One of the news pieces came from a Brandon News article regarding Civil War food prices listed in the private papers of D.F. Jones from 1865. Per the papers, Sherman came through Brandon and burned everything but the houses he and his soldiers camped in and destroyed any crops that could have been used by men or animals. Six onions were $3.00. 12 cabbage heads were $20, pork was $2.50 a pound, and a dozen eggs was $5. According to N2013Dollars.com, which uses inflation data from the U.S. Department of Labor, $1 in 1865 had the buying power of $18.52 today. These eggs would have cost you around $93, which makes $3 a dozen not look so bad. Social customs and practices of the county are also discussed in the papers. During the so-called saloon days, women were never seen on the streets on Saturdays. This is not explicitly explained, but one can assume that it is due to the great deal of drinking and rowdyism and the perpetually crowded criminal docket. If you want to dress like a Rankin Countyan of yesteryear, Miss Betty Jones Collier recalls how in the 1890s fascinators were stylish for both young women and children. Fascinators were hats knitted from woolen thread and came in white, blue, red, and light pink. Some fascinators were only about eight inches wide, but one and a half yards in length, and were worn over the head, crossed at the neck, and tied under the chin. If you weren't the type to wear almost five feet of fabric on your head, you could wear a triangular scarf which you tied under your chin and which had a fashionable tassel at the back. If you're interested in learning more about the WPA files, please visit the Mississippi Library Commission's website to view digital copies or call the reference desk at 601 432 if you're looking for more information about local history, visit your local Mississippi Public Library. What is it about crime, and murder in particular, that fascinates us as humans? We are so curious about the motivations of others, especially when those motivations turn dark. Today, we're going to talk about a decades-old Mississippi murder case, thanks to a book that's filled with all the details that are truly podcast-worthy. Picture the scene. Laurel, 1935. A wealthy older woman has gone missing and her daughter stands accused of her murder, the details of which are particularly gruesome. Weta Keaton was accused of not only murdering her mother, Daisy Keaton, but of disposing of her body in a variety of truly vile ways, including, most unfortunately, wrapping her mother's legs in sackcloth and dumping them in the woods. The legs would prove to be not only the most memorable part of the story, which would become known as the legs murder, but the biggest clue leading directly to Weta Keaton's arrest. Hunter Cole's meticulously researched 2010 book, The Legs Murder Scandal, tells the incredible and grisly story of Daisy Keaton's murder. In January 1935, Weta Keaton was in her mid-30s and living with her mother in Laurel. The family had moved to Laurel from McNeil after the possibly accidental, possibly not, death of her father, who was hit by a train in 1907. Multiple insurance policies made his widow, Daisy, a millionaire, though Daisy at some point over the years had put everything, including their home, in Weta's name. 
Over the years, Wita had tried on various careers. She'd taken a course in hotel management with the idea of a mother-daughter hotel venture. She had worked as the office manager in the lumberyard office of William Madison Carter, known as Matt Carter. Matt and Wita's unlikely friendship due to their age difference and his marital status did not go unnoticed. It didn't take long for Laurel Police to link the legs in the woods with Wita. Upon questioning, Wita had several stories to offer up. She first claimed that her mother was merely visiting family in New Orleans. Then she said that they were both kidnapped by an old lady in a bonnet and that she didn't know where her mother was. Her next story was that a strange man came to the house and killed her mother. The next story was that her mother fell against the mantelpiece and that Matt Carter, who just happened to be there visiting, gathered Daisy up and said he was going to take her to the hospital. Eventually, the story she stuck with emerged, that Matt Carter struck her mother on the head with a fire poker and then took the body away with him, returning with the legs later and telling her to toss them over the Tallahalla Creek Bridge. When the legs were too heavy for her to lift, she drove to a woody area and dragged the legs out a short distance from the road. Unfortunately, her car was stuck in the mud and she had to hitch a ride back into town. A few hours later, a farmer doing some rabbit hunting found the legs. After her arrest, police searching the house found plenty of evidence that a crime had been committed. Wita was charged with the murder of her mother and stood trial in March of 1935. She pled not guilty by reason of insanity. Her physical and mental health had declined while in custody, and by the time of the trial, she was using a wheelchair, though that did come in handy when she needed to nap throughout the trial. Wita's lawyers claimed that there was no proof that those were Daisy's legs found in the woods, and without proof that Daisy had been murdered, Wita could not be found guilty. It's not a spoiler to say that Wita was found guilty in order to life imprisonment. She spent most of the next 30-plus years at Whitfield, the state mental hospital, with a diagnosis of dementia precox, catatonic type, profound. As for Carter, he was found guilty, filed an appeal, and was granted a preliminary hearing, during which Wita testified that she didn't know whether her previous testimony about his involvement was true or false, and Carter was released as a free man. If you're interested in true crime, and especially the local kind, Hunter Cole's book, The Legs Murder Scandal, is one you don't want to miss. While I skimmed over the details here, Cole's book does not skim and includes details that will help you decide whether Wita and Carter were guilty and what their motivations might have been. Published in 2010, the book is exhaustively researched and documented, relying on court's transcripts, hospital records, and newspaper accounts to tell the story. There's even a postscript by Mississippi writer Elizabeth Spencer, plus this tidbit, Anderson Cooper is distantly related to Weta by marriage. For more information about Weta Keaton or to find a copy of The Legs Murder Scandal, visit your local Mississippi public library. Thank you for listening to Stacks and Stories, the podcast of the Mississippi Library Commission. We hope you will tune in next time, and we encourage you to visit your local public library often.